0: Good morning. My name is Yeni, and I'm going to read the Bible for us. Today's reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I invite you to follow along on your Bibles, or on your own devices, or on the screen behind me. Revelation, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with an, a new name written on it, known only to the one who received it.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Annie, And good morning, everyone. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathaniel, uh, as Kirstie said. Um, and hey, uh, we're going to start out by checking out this lake. It should be there. This is Lake Mackenzie. Uh and this is one of the purest lakes in Australia. Uh, what do you think about it? It's pretty I think pristine, clear, blue, lovely. Um if you're there in summer, better be great for a swim. Um and you probably drink straight from it. But now I want you to imagine that a truck's coming by. Uh and then this truck is pouring tons of nuclear waste into this lake. Are you game enough to drink from that water? Would you take a swim in it? I wouldn't. The lake's been ruined by this. It's not pristine and beautiful and clear anymore. Um, and this is a bit what like the church in Pergamum is like that we're looking at today. Uh, so here at church, uh, we've been looking at Revelation, um, and particularly uh, the first few chapters, uh, where there's seven letters sent to seven churches. Uh, and today we're up to the third church, which is Pergamum. Um, And Pergamum is a church that's a lot like Lake Mackenzie. Jesus describes this church as faithful. Uh, But we see that there's a problem in Pergamum, which is spoiling their church. So let's get into it. Uh, The letter begins with an encouragement from Jesus. We find out that Pergamum is a church that has endured much hardship. There's lots of persecution going on at this church. People are even being killed at that church. If you look at verse 13, this is how bad it gets. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And also, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. We see that they're living where Satan has his throne. One of the believers, Antipas, was put to death for their faith. And then Jesus emphasizes again that Satan lives there. The Pergamon church is clearly in a tough spot. But what does it mean for Satan to have his throne there? Does Jesus mean that Satan set up camp in Pergamon? Like, you know, Pergamon's my favorite church, I'm just going to live there forever. Uh, Not quite. Um, The image of Satan's throne is probably a reference to what's going on in the city. Uh, You see, Pergamon was the capital um, of the region at that time. Um, And so it's the seat where the Roman governor would rule from. And about 150 uh, years earlier, there was a temple built in Pergamum. The emperor at the time, Augustus, decided that he was going to build a temple. To himself. With this, Pergamum became the place to go if you wanted to worship the emperor. The emperor was viewed as a god and worshipped in that way. So, you can probably imagine that for a Christian living there you'd have a hard time. I mean, you wouldn't worship the Roman gods. You wouldn't worship the emperor. You're just not going to be a very good Roman at that time. So it would have been very difficult for you to fit in. So with all of this going on, what does Jesus call the Pergamum church? Faithful. Maybe that's surprising to you. You might think that they would have caved to all this pressure that they were experiencing. But then we see in all of verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. The believers would not renounce their faith in, would not renounce their faith in Jesus, even with all that pressure going on. I'm wondering whether there's many people who are familiar with Lord of the Rings right now. I love these movies. They're so good. It's a blast to get all the friends over and have a movie marathon, all of them one day, 12 hours. Wonderful. But, I do have a confession. I don't actually like the Hobbits that much. You know, like the little small guys, you have Sam and Frodo. Uh, they're the ones whose job it is to destroy the ring. Um, but, I just think their story's a bit boring sometimes. Uh, I just want to get back to the action. You have Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, finding all the Orcs, it's exciting. But there is one sequence for the, Frodo, uh, for the Hobbits that I think is utterly riveting. Towards the end of the story, Frodo and Sam make it towards Mordor. This is the home of Sauron, and Sauron's the big bad in the story. Uh, and you follow Sam and Frodo along for a long, agonizing journey the whole way through Mordor. And then they finally get to Mount Doom, and there they can destroy the ring. But this whole time while they're going through Mordor, you can feel the tension. They're never really quite safe there. They're right under the nose of Sauron. This is what it must have felt like to be one of the believers in Pergamum. You'd never feel quite safe there, especially after the death of Antipas. You probably have a bunch of questions. Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Why did Jesus let Antipas die? Am I going to be next? The terror and dread must have been palpable for them. But despite all this, the Pergamon church did not renounce their faith. What an encouragement to us. But of course, for many Christians, this is still what it's like to live today. We have brothers and sisters living in countries where they will face regular persecution. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea who experience state-sponsored persecution or people who uh, experience Islamic extremism in places like Somalia, or cultural exclusion in places like India. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in these countries. Perhaps it might help you to have a prayer guide to do this. Uh, There's organizations out there that want to help you pray for the persecuted church. Uh, Organizations like Open Doors or the Voice of the Martyrs. Just like the church in Pergamon, these Christians are experiencing persecution. Could you pray for them? But it also makes us ask ourselves, is Jesus worth persecution to us? Would we be willing to follow in the steps of Pergamum? Would we be faithful when it gets tough for us? And so, we might think that the church in Pergamum is looking all good. They're faithful to Jesus, and they're in a very tough spot but we see that all is not quite well with them. This is because Pergamon has a false teaching issue. Look at verse 14 with me. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they eat food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And in verse 15, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, like, what is this teaching of Balaam? And who are the mysterious Nicolaitans? Unfortunately, we don't really know much about the Nicolaitans. Uh, there's not a lot about what they believed. We can say for certain Jesus didn't like that teaching, though. Um, and as for the teaching of Balaam, well, we saw that it was leading the believers to sexual immorality and to idolatry. So make no mistake, false teaching is not a small matter. Perhaps it might be tempting sometimes to trivialize it. Perhaps you might want to avoid an argument with someone at church. Or perhaps you might want to appear up to, uh, up with the times to your non-believing friends. But we see that false teaching leads to terrible sin. Sin against God, sin against yourself, and sin against others. And this is what was happening in Pogamon. False teaching was leading otherwise faithful Pogamon Christians away from a life worthy of their saviour. On a more trivial note, I saw an article not too long ago, and it said that the uh, the article said that KFC had the best chips in Australia. But this is a farce, it can't be real, because everyone knows that Porto's has the best fast food chips, right? They've got great seasoning, their dipping sauces pair so well, it's wonderful. But I think we will all agree though, that even though they might be tasty, they're not a healthy food choice. You know, they're full of oil, they're full of saturated fats, they've got lots of salt, it's just generally a lot of bad stuff. But just imagine for a second, what if I believe that these chips were healthy for me? And so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna eat them all the time. You know, I'd be a Porto's for lunch every day. I might go to dinner. I might get them for dinner as well, if there were stores closer to me. I didn't have to drive 15 minutes every time. But what's going to happen to me? I doubt my body would cope very well with this treatment for long. So you can see the point, right? False beliefs can lead us towards destructive behaviours. So for Pergamum, what if someone was teaching that's okay to worship the emperor? Just make sure you add Jesus in as well. Or imagine that someone was teaching about sexual morality, and they said, "It's not that big of a deal. You know, everyone else is doing it." What havoc would these teachings wreak on a church? It's clear to see why Jesus has this against them. It'd be like dumping nuclear waste into Lake Mackenzie. The teaching of a few people is spoiling the rest of the otherwise faithful church. And to be honest, it hasn't really changed for us today. Think of all the beliefs that our world teaches us. Think where they lead us. You know, beliefs like, you have to be true to yourself, then you'll be happy. So you do what you want, whatever makes you your authentic self. And so you put yourself in God's shoes and you decide what's right or wrong for you. Or perhaps that it's all that really matters is that you're a good person. You know, you're much better than all those other people. I mean, you've never murdered, you've never stolen. You know, God must be happy with you, right? Think how easily this takes our dependence on Jesus away from us. Or perhaps if you just earned a little bit more, or you had that newest and latest gadget, then you might be fulfilled. And so that you might have bought into materialism. You a belief that life is all about stuff. Pursuing money, or a house, or a new job. Being up to date with the latest or greatest tech. Experiencing all the things the world has to offer or maybe just the newest holiday. So perhaps you might then justify that you don't have to be generous to other people. We don't have to look far to see examples of this. False teachings and false beliefings that might lead us to sin. And for certain, some of these might even take place in churches. I wonder how that makes you feel. Do you feel righteously indignant? How dare someone teach these things in a church? Perhaps you might feel resigned. How can the church ever be fixed when there's so much wrong going on in it? Perhaps you might even feel proud. We, you might believe that we'd never be in a church that has false teaching. Whichever response you have, it's probably helpful to consider how Jesus responds to them. Perhaps you imagine Jesus responding the same way as you do. Or, considering Jesus called the church faithful earlier, maybe you think he doesn't care. It's probably not that big deal to him. Well, here's what Jesus has to say. He is not going to let false teaching spoil his church. In fact, Jesus holds the whole church responsible for his false teaching. Uh, In verse 16, Jesus says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and will fight against them, that's the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. It appears that many of the believers in Pergamon were simply standing by while all this false teaching was going on. Jesus did not like this. If the Pergamon church was not going to correct the false teachers, Jesus was going to come against them. He was going to fight against them with a sword of his mouth. Could you imagine that? Uh, Back in chapter 1 of Revelation, we saw this vision of Jesus, and in this vision he had a sword coming out of his mouth, and it's awe-inspiring. The judgment that was coming was very serious. It's something that the believers in pogrom should have wanted to uh, avoid happening to their fellow members. I mean, think about this. If your friend believed that Portos was healthy for them, what are you going to do? Are you going to let them keep believing that? I, I'd hope not. I hope what you would do is you would correct them in their belief. Um, and that's going to be the thing that is loving to do for them. It's the same principle here. Laying people continue in false teaching is an unloving thing to do. But then what do we do with all this? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to realize that we shouldn't be feeling superior to other believers. Think about this, Jesus called the Pergamon Church faithful. So despite the rampant false teaching at Pergamon, Jesus still called them his people. It might be like that in churches today. And so, if we need to have a conversation with another believer, let's approach it with humility. We should be willing to listen and to ask questions. Um, And perhaps we might even learn from someone. Um, And in the same vein, it's also important for us to not be overly eager to call someone uh, something false teaching. Because not every disagreement we'll have on doctrine is necessary false teaching. For example, we might have a disagreement on the end times or predestination. Maybe even baptism or the Lord's Supper. This is probably not false teaching. Very important areas of theology for sure, but faithful believers have, can, and have disagreed on these in past. And they've still kept their faith in Jesus. So we should keep a posture of humility towards Christians. And it shouldn't be our goal to go out hunting for heretics. But how can we know if something then is in the category of false teaching? And then what do we do about that? Well, I think the letter gives us a couple of clues on how we can know uh, what false teaching is. Uh, The first we see is that the teaching going on in Pergamon was leading to sexual immorality and idolatry. And so one test would be to ask, does this teaching lead us towards sin? Uh, What happened at Pergamon was an extreme example but it could be a little bit more subtle than that. Uh, For instance, what if someone believed that their work was where they found their significance and meaning for life? Uh, Then perhaps they're going to spend all their lives in the workplace and they'll neglect the relationships that God has given to them. So, sometimes false teaching might lead to sin. Uh, But the second test we see in this passage is hinted at in how Jesus introduces himself. He is the one that has a sword coming out of his mouth. And this is an image of God's word. This shows us that God's word is powerful. And so God's word is the standard that we use to judge teaching. This is to say that we protect our church from false teaching by holding each other accountable to what God has to say. This is done in a community, together, not on our own. And this helps us to see past our own biases. Biases. But then finally, what do we do when we do have to have a conversation with someone about false teaching? Well, Jesus commands the church at Pergamon to correct these people. It's a very serious matter. If they didn't do it, then Jesus was going to come to them. He was going to fight against them with the sword of his mouth. So, it is most assuredly the loving thing to do to correct someone who is teaching falsely. So, to do this, make sure that you're really listening to the person. Ask questions of them. And perhaps you might even help them realize where they've gone wrong. I've gone wrong themselves. Make sure that you use God's word as you go about it. So be prepared before you have one of these conversations. It could be helpful to have a clear idea um, of which Bible passages you were going to look at before you go and start the conversation. And perhaps this might seem very tricky to you. Um, So have a conversation with someone that you trust beforehand. I'm certain that Scott or Ada would be more than happy to talk to you about this, um, but perhaps it might be a trusted friend, or perhaps it might be someone else at your church. God's word is best read in community with other believers, and so talk it through with other believers. And finally, be sure to, con- uh, to approach a conversation like this with prayer. It's God
0: who has the power to change hearts and minds. So pray for them. And that note, We pray for us? Heavenly Father,
1: we thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection and the life he now gives us. Forgive us, please, for where we haven't defended this good news, as we should have from false teaching. Also, forgive us for where we have been overzealous against our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would give us both courage to stand up against false teaching and wisdom to know how to navigate such conversations. Please protect us here at Paraka from such false teaching creeping in. Let your word guide our lives and conduct. In Jesus' name. Amen.